Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, uh, good morning. My name is Terry. If we don't know one another, I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's good to see everybody. We have been walking through a series in the book of Exodus, and you may have noticed that for the past month, maybe, we took a break from Exodus, and we talked about our DNA as a church, and then last week we celebrated God's work and goodness in our, in our lives. Um, in our Exodus study where we left off, um, we saw the Israelites had been in the wilderness, and they ended up at the uh, foot of Mount Sinai. And if, you're, uh, if you've been around a church for a while, if you know the Bible a little bit, you know that Mount Sinai is where uh, the Lord is about to give the Ten Commandments. And so we thought, uh, James and I thought, that uh, it'd be great for us to slow down here and do sort of a series within a series, a mini-series on the Ten Commandments. And people are like, wow, the Ten Commandments, I'm so excited. Uh, somebody, somebody's excited? Who's excited? Thank you, Leslie. Uh, you know, we don't get excited about anything that has the word commandments in it. I don't, I don't, I don't think, you know, I mean, just being honest, maybe it's only me. I, I can sometimes get tired of rules. I, I don't know about you guys. And maybe, maybe it's the case with you, like it was the case for me once, where that's kind of why I didn't want anything to do with the whole organized religion thing anyway. It wasn't just a bunch of, a, a bunch of rules, a bunch of do's and don'ts and um, isn't that what Christianity is about? It's a bunch of rules telling everybody how to live. And uh, you know, that's a real sentiment we can have, isn't it? Maybe a sentiment we do have presently. At the same time, though, I think there's a, another reality that we realize and we face. And we face it often when we allow our, our lives to be quiet enough to think some things through. And we stop distracting ourselves long enough to ponder some things. It's during times like that that we, I mean, we, we realize we do want to live as, as free beings. We still want to be able to do what we want to do. But we also realize, if we're honest, that we're just making things up as we go sometimes. I mean, we, we don't really have a real map or real trustworthy guide to live life really well. Um, so we, we make up creeds for ourselves, don't we? Our, our, own, our own lists of do's and don'ts. And truth be told, we don't even live up to those 100% consistently, do we? we make up, this, these, this is what I live by. This is my, my motto. This is, this is the thing for my life. You know, I always treat others fairly and treat others well and be honest and work hard and we don't always live up to those, to those things that we, we make up for ourselves. And on the rare occasion when we do follow the rules that we make up for ourselves, they don't ultimately provide any sense of satisfaction or purpose. I've, I've heard it a thousand times when I'm talking to people who reject God's authority on their life, and I've seen it in my own heart when I do the same thing. Right? Those things don't provide real happiness. I think we know that we need Something solid, something to hold on to. Um, the question is, where do, we, where do we find such a thing? Right? Is, where can we find this, uh, this 
trustworthy guy. There are lots of voices you know, telling us this is the way to live your life. We have our own internal voice telling us how to live our life. Well, who's right would be a great question. I, I, I guess a good way to phrase it would be who's righteous and can therefore tell us how to live. Who can we trust? Well, if you've studied history, you know that there are lots of law codes around the world. Some of them look very similar to the Ten Commandments. Some of them, like the Code of Hammurabi, are older than the Ten Commandments. But contrary to what you may have heard, that doesn't point to the Ten Commandments somehow being not authoritative or not being from God. Quite the opposite is the case. The fact that um, we have all these similar law codes throughout cultures points to the fact that the Creator God, who, ha- who really is there, has imprinted on the heart of every human being a certain set of moral laws. There really is a moral law out there that's objective that we feel in here in a subjective way. Um, it presses down upon our hearts. That, that kind of thing requires, the fact that there's a moral law requires a moral law giver by the way. It points to the fact that God is there. In many ways, and we'll get to our text in just a second, but in many ways, we can recognize that the Ten Commandments are the natural law. If you're a note taker, you may want to write that word down. I didn't put it on the screen, but they're the natural law. What do I mean by that? They describe the nature of things. They describe how things really are. We see that in the Ten Commandments. Have you noticed that the Ten Commandments are holistic? If you've ever read them before, they touch every part of life, right? They are universal because they're coming from God. We'll see in just a minute. They apply to every human being throughout all places at all times. Let's let's take a controversial one, for example, and we'll get into it in a few weeks. But the fourth commandment, set apart a Sabbath day to keep it holy. That's what set apart means, holy, honor the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You, You may think that's like the least followed thing today, right? Nobody wants to set apart the Sabbath to, you know, to keep it holy or, or whatever. But I would argue it's one of the most followed ones today. Well, what, what, what do I mean? Do you realize that everyone thinks it's their right to have a day off? Do you realize that? Everybody thinks it's their right to have a day off. We'll get again into it in a few weeks, but if we realize that Jesus said that the Sabbath commandment was made so that mankind would be sure to take a rest, then we can start to see some things. It's a pattern that God laid down for us Himself. He created for six days. He rested on Sabbath, not because He was tired. God does not get tired, right? It's a pattern for us to follow. And that's why in all human societies, they accept both, yes, we work really hard, and it's important for us to have days off. We have holidays, literally holy days, off. We rest. So people may not want to set apart the Sabbath per se, but everyone recognized the need to set apart for rest. And we expect it in our work week, right? Our calendars are literally built upon holidays. Well, why? It's because it's the law of God. It's the way things are. It's written on our hearts as people, and God explains it in greater clarity in His Word. So clearly there are some rules that are good, are there, are there not? Right? Take a rest. That's a great rule. I'll do that. Right? There's some rules that are good, but which rules? Whose rules would be a better way to put it? I, 
I came across, before we get to our text, a quote in my um, ethics studies this week about war and peace. And I want you to see how this applies. It's coming up on the screen. You can follow along if you want. The natural law might be construed as an imprint made on human nature itself. Justice represents the basic obligation of human beings as creatures. Nature, confirmed through conscience, reveals to all people everywhere an awareness of basic moral reality that may not be transgressed. To wit, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, are known not only through the Hebrew Scriptures in the form of the Ten Commandments, literally the Ten Words, which, we were, given in, which were given to ancient Israel as the backbone of its covenant relationship to the Creator. Rather, these injunctions are known and intuited by all human beings, written on their hearts, woven into the very fabric of creation. Cain knew this, and he fled. But all people prior to the giving of the law on Mount Sinai knew it as well, including those who formalized the Hammurabi Code in the 18th century B.C. The relevant question is, how did they possess this basic moral knowledge? See, the only, the only question is, has the real God who's actually there spoken to us and revealed to us how to live? So the law is written on, ev on every heart. But our hearts are corrupt. Do you realize that? God speaks perfectly. We do not hear perfectly. That's why you have, if you go throughout the world, you have all these law codes. They have basic similarities, but there are some differences. The law on their hearts, which is objective, is interpreted subjectively. And so we get different laws. But we see that God has written things down for us now in stone. And we call those things the Ten Commandments. Let's turn to them now. Exodus chapter 19. We're going to, the Ten Commandments begin in chapter 20. But I want us to back up just a tad and take a look at the setting. And then we'll take a look at the first commandment, just the first commandment this week. It's the bedrock of the rest of them. And so today we will look at have no other gods, or to state positively, only worship God. Only worship God. Worship God only is the first one. So we're going to see as we go through here, we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 19, verse 16, and we're going to read through the first commandment in 20, verse 3. Exodus 19, 16, On the morning of the third day there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and every loud trumpet blast, or in a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down 
to the people and told them. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. We'll stop there today. So you may uh, have found that passage familiar. It's like a previously, previously on in your favorite show. We'll give you context. This is the setting. Here's where things are going on. It's, it's very important to realize that particular setting, the, the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the warnings, and that God in this setting, before giving the commandments, identified himself. God reminded them of who he is. Now remember, he had just, in, in context, he had just demonstrated his superiority over all the false gods in Egypt. And he had done so in amazing ways. And he had identified himself way back in uh, Exodus 3 as Yahweh. He had given Moses his personal name. He had identified himself as the only self-existing eternal one. And again, like I said in, in Egypt, he backed that up by showing all sorts of things, all sorts of miracles, showing his control over the creation. And so in this setting, he reminds them of who he is. The song choices today were perfect. He reminds them of who he is. He says, I am the Lord. Again, that's his personal name. That's how he has identified himself, Yahweh in the original language. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God is saying it's him who's giving the law. And therefore it is the law and should be heeded and obeyed. He, the real God, is speaking, not one of the false gods from Egypt or anyone else. This is the real God, and He's reminding His people, I'm the one talking to you. I'm the one that delivered you. I am Yahweh. I'm the only self-existing eternal one. Don't have any other gods before me. He's defining the terms here. God is showing us reality, and that we may live accordingly, according to reality, and truly live because of that. So I, heard, I read one pastor who said it's not too much of a stretch to say that the Ten Commandments serve as sort of a definition of reality. This is God, defined, this is God telling it like it is, right? God is, is telling us that if we must live in obedience, if we're going to adjust our lives according to reality, so the first commandment reminds us that God defines reality, not we creatures. Um, he defines reality because He made it. Therefore, He, not us, defines not only reality, but morality, right? Because God created reality, He defines morality. So then after reminding them of who He is, He gives them this first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. That word before... Um, literally means before my face. If you're following along in the ESV, you may see that in a footnote. It says before my face. In other words, it means, uh, or you may see besides me, right? God's saying, I better not see any other gods, right? If you're a parent, you tell a kid, I better not, I better not see any food left on that plate, right? That means no food, right? God's saying, I better not see any other gods. It's like this. Who in here is uh, a husband to Kelly Hollifield besides me? There better not be any. 
right? None, none besides me. I am the only husband of Kelly Hollifield. There is an appropriate exclusivity to our relationship. It's a covenant, is it not? And so there's an appropriate exclusivity. By the way, let me just say while we're at it, there, there better not only be no other husbands to Kelly Hollifield, there better be no other lovers, period, to Kelly Hollifield. It isn't an, it's an appropriate exclusivity. Uh, and so it is with this commandment. No other gods before me does not mean that you can have other gods as long as you put Yahweh higher than them. It means that he's saying, I don't want to see any other gods. Now remember the context. Remember where they're just coming from, Egypt. All kinds of false gods. God's like, I don't see any of that. No other gods in my face. I don't want to see it. He's, he's telling them. He's been very clear. Um, they shouldn't have any other gods at all. And, and next week, Lord willing, Pastor James will walk through what some of our uh, false gods or idols might look like. But suffice it to say for today, there should be none. Right? God says, no, no, other, no other gods. So why would God make such a statement? It sounds... You know, on surface, it could sound kind of insecure. No, no other, you can't, you can't have any other gods. You know, it's not like, um, you know, is, is God afraid of competition? We'll learn later uh, that God is indeed jealous. Um, so why, why does he say, have no other gods? Well, here in this passage, the Bible doesn't explicitly tell us why we should have no other gods. But if you look at the whole of Scripture, I think there's several reasons why God would say you can't have any other gods. The first one is because of who He is. We just sang about that, right? The nature of God demands that we can't have any other gods. Do you realize that God has an actual identity? Like God's a real being. There are things that are true about God. There are things that are false about God. He has a real, actual identity. God's being a real being means, by definition, that He has a specific and definite identity. Remember, again, back in verse 2, before He gave this command, have no other gods, He reminded them of His identity. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. And so the fact that God has a specific identity means that we can't, we can't assign an identity to God. He is who He is. God has exclusivity. In, in fact, that's part of what His name means. When Moses asked His name back in Exodus chapter 3, God said what? I am who I am. Right? I am who I am, God tells Moses. He is a necessary being, right? He exists eternally. He has what philosophers call self-existence, right? He exists eternally. In fact, He cannot not exist. God says, I am who I am. Everything else, is, is, everything else in all of reality apart from God is a contingent thing. In other words, everything else depends on something else or some sequence of events for its existence. They're contingent. All physical things, time, matter, which includes energy, space, are contingent things. All physical things are contingent. They can't arise out of nothing. Everything that has come into existence needs a cause. I'm going to give you a little philosophy here. Everything that comes into existence has to have an explanation for its existence outside of itself. This is why the philosophy of naturalism or materialism, the idea that 
matter and energy are all that they ever were, was, or, or is, or will be. This is why that's failed from the jump, right? Because all matter and energy are contingent. So, if, for example, if you, if you believe that the universe or, or multiverse, if you want to go with Marvel Comics or whatever, right? If people like to speculate the multiverse, even though there's no evidence for it. If you think they arose from a, a quantum uncertainty field, well, great. A quantum uncertainty field is a thing, is it not? It's a physical thing. It's part of the universe. So that thing, too, has, has a need for a cause, we haven't answered anything. All things that come into existence like universes must have an outside cause. But notice, God did not come into existence. God is not that kind of thing. God is an eternal being and by definition, therefore, does not require a cause. Because only things that come into being at some point have, have to have a cause. God never came into being. God is who he is, he told Moses. You may not have caught on to that back when we looked at that with Moses, but that's what Yahweh means. God says, I am the self-existing one. So why point all that out? Why did I, why, why go into the physics and philosophy with you? Uh, by the way, we've just scratched the surface of those things. Maybe you could talk about it more in MC this week. But the reason I had us kind of dip our toes in that waters, number one, because all truth is God's truth. But number two, it shows us, and more importantly, it shows us something about God. Namely, that God, write this down, has ultimate and intrinsic worth because of who He is. God has ultimate and intrinsic worth. He's not dependent upon anything else, and neither, therefore, is his worth. This is why he reminds the Israelites and us, before giving them the commandments, this is why he reminds us of who he is. He is the grounding of all reality. Everything depends on him. We depend on him because he has ultimate worth, ultimate value. So that's the first reason why loyalty to him is the first commandment. It's because he's worthy of it. No other gods, because only God, the real God, Yahweh, is worthy of worship. Now, you might recognize that we humans have worship too, have worth too, do we not? I mean, we're valuable. In fact, the Ten Commandments show us that very strongly. You'll see that as we get into the humans mean a lot to the Lord. And you'll see that as, as we get into them. Um, it's not, it's not that we value ourselves too much. We value ourselves and others too little. That may sound strange. We're all pretty arrogant and prideful, uh, truth be told. But what I mean by that is if we shun God's view of us and we put our, ourselves above God or uh, make for ourselves a false notion of God that looks a lot like us, right, to, to, to worship, then we're actually, we think by doing that we're valuing ourselves more. The opposite's true. Because to do that, we have to deny God and therefore deny that we have been made in the image of God to be His representatives on the earth. That's the highest possible thing we could ever think of ourselves and be truthful. But if, So if we take down God and put ourselves in His place, we actually have reduced our value in reality because we've removed the image of God from us. So professing ourselves to be wise and set ourselves up as our own gods, we've become fools the Bible says. So the problem is 
is really that we don't value God enough. So we can't even value ourselves and one another properly. Uh, that's why we must start with God. Well, more, more on that a little bit later. But we got to understand that we are contingent. Our worth is derived from God. God confers value upon us. It's granted by God. And that's why the Ten Commandments, the next thing that you should write down, God's moral law is all about worth. You'll see that as we go through. The first one about God's worth, no other gods, only worship God. Um, these, this moral law is about the value of things. Unlike the ceremonial and civil laws of the, the Israelites, which only applied to them at that time and, and place, the moral law, namely these Ten Commandments, applied to all people at all times and all places. It's because God never changes, and all people everywhere throughout time are equally valuable, right? God's worth never changes. The value of every human being never changes. Therefore, this moral law about God and people applies universally to all people everywhere in life. God has designed it that way. If you're a Bible student, you may have noticed that the first three commandments tell us the worth of God and how we should view God and treat God. And then the rest of the commandments follow from that and show us how we should treat and view one another. It sets up God's worth, God's value, and then shows us how we should value one another as a response to our value for God. He alone deserves worship. Um, so those moral laws are for God's glory and our good. Do you realize when we value one another as we should, that's a good thing? that only comes from valuing God as, as we should. Uh, so things that work out for God's glory are the exact same things that work out for our good. You know, the longer I live, the more I see that. I may think, well, if this is for God's glory and it's not very good for me, but I'll take it because it's for God's glory. Those two things always come together. God's glory and our good, this, that may be controversial to you. God's glory and our good always come together. Why? Because God is himself our ultimate good. He is what's best for us. He really is. So things that work out for his glory in our lives are for our good. That's what he does. That's how he does those things. Um, you know, I... Uh, <laughs> We should love the law of God. We should love the law. It sounds weird, right? We, we're all very self-assertive people. We want to be free and that sort of thing, but we should love the law of God. And if it were, if it, if it were merely man's law, that, it should be weird, and that would be wrong. But this is the moral law of God. So I want to kind of unpack why we should love the moral law of God. The first thing I want us to remember is that God didn't give us these Ten Commandments. This is sort of an overview of the Ten Commandments today, I realize. But I want you to know that the first thing that we should know is that these commandments were not given so that we could be saved through them. Right? We, we, they're great. <laughs> he did not give it to us so that we could be saved through them. From the earliest days of Genesis, you may remember in our Genesis study, God pointed to a Savior who alone could save us. So God didn't give us the law so we could earn salvation. Why did He give it? Three basic purposes for the law. And I want you to keep these in mind as we go throughout the series. 
First and most foundationally, the law teaches us about the heart of God. It teaches us about the heart. It reveals what God, the designer and maker of all human beings, considers to be right human behavior. All right, the law shows us God's desires for our lives and our character. Since He's all loving, then these laws are all loving. And they are what's best for us. Because, again, He's what's best for us, and these laws reflect His heart and His heart for us. So hopefully you'll see that why in this next one. The second reason is because the law restrains sin. Of course, the, the most important thing about this is that we don't want to sin against God, right? Because of who He is, right? We want to please Him. He is worthy of, living, of us living in a way that is pleasing to Him. So the law helps us be less offensive to God because it shows us what God finds offensive. And so we don't want to do those things. So as we pointed out before, not only does it work for God's glory, but it works for our good. Check it out. It's good for us not to be offensive to the judge of all the earth. Works out well for you, right? If we're not offensive to the one who will judge us, that's awesome, right? So we work, it's for our good, right? It's for our good. Jesus is not only the Savior, He's also the judge. Uh, we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But also restraining sin protects us, does it not? If we all sinned as much as we wanted to sin, it would be bad for all of us. If I sinned as much as I want to sin, it would be bad for all, of, for all of you, right? If you sinned as much as you want to sin, it would be bad for your coworkers and your friends and your family, right? And, and all, all around and interlinked. Restraining sin protects us. Think about it. A society without the moral law is not freedom. It is bloody anarchy, right? It is... <laughs> the absence of the law is not freedom. It's, it's chaos and bondage to human sinfulness, right? So when we reject God's rule, we don't get freedom. We get the rule of our fellow human beings, right? And we, that ends in tyranny. We do not want that. So if everyone, either uh, the mass of individuals or the group of the ruling class, does what they feel like doing, living to their rules, living to my own rules, then my motivation is only to advance my own interests or please myself. That's not freedom. That's the tyranny of self. That's what that is. So the law of God points us to a higher standard that thus reigns in our sin. It protects us in the process. The law is beautiful. We should love it. Third reason, the law makes us aware of sin and our need for grace. You know, when we read God's law, we see that God is describing a measure of obedience and holiness that we can't live up to. Have you ever noticed that? This week, the Ten Commandments, um, I think, are part of our reading this week, are they not? Coming up? Take, take, a, take some time to read them and, and get out a checklist. And as you go down through there, see, do I always honor my father and mother? Do I lie? Do I break copyright law, a.k.a. stealing? Right? Do, I, do, do I, right? It, it's, it's, it's a check. And when you go down through there, you're like, whoa, man, I'm a sinner. Listen, 
That's a great thing to realize because God could let you just keep on sinning and never let you know. You've got a disease, but I'm not going to tell you about it. No, it's gracious to say, hey, you've, you're, you're broken. You're, you're a sinner. So God uh, tells us what's best for us. God shows us that we are sinners. It's what's best for us. Romans 7, 7 comes to mind. It says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For what I, I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. All right, so God... Listen, coveting is wrong whether you've been told about it or not. Remember, ignorance of the law is not innocence, is it? Speeding ticket people, not stopping at traffic light people, right? Ignorance of the law is not innocence of the law. So God says, this is the law. This is how things are. He's just revealing it to us so that we know. Um, so we're seeing the standard of the perfect and holy God being laid out here in front of us. And truth be told... None of us obey any of the Ten Commandments sinlessly. Um, remember that Jesus says if you look at another person with lust, it's committing adultery. If you hate someone, you've committed uh, murder in your heart. So the only one that keep, keeps God's law perfectly is the same person who just said those words. Listen, it's a, the, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, deeds, and motives? That person is Jesus. He's the only one who has kept God's law perfectly. And so the law shows us that we are sinners. It shows us that we need grace. And it shows us our needed response of faith. Um, we need not receive Jesus as Savior if we're perfect. Listen, you can get into heaven if you're perfect. Entrance into heaven and relationship with God here only requires one thing, perfection. That's all it requires. The bad news is that none of us meet the requirement. None of us meet the requirement. Um, and so Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified, not by the law, by faith. We are justified by faith. It's true that we cannot get to heaven by keeping the law because we can't. you have to be perfect to do that. We cannot have a relationship with God right now by keeping the law because you have to be perfect to do that. Uh, so people that hope to have a, be right with God and um, get to heaven uh, by being, doing their best, being sincere, having you know, uh, enough good works out there, that's heading down the wrong road. That will never, ever, ever get you there. It's like trying to go from, from here to um, the Carolina coast and only going west. You just you can't do it. You can't get there from here. Your best and my best is not good enough. That's the point of one of the points of these laws. And God rightly demands perfection because He's, he's perfect, right? He's, he's a good and just judge. 
And he's showing that. Remember the context here at Sinai, the, the lightning and the smoke were not so people could enjoy the show. God is showing his holiness, his character. He is holy, holy, holy. God is good. So we must approach him as holy, holy, holy. Listen, lest he break out against us. Remember the context there. God says, these are the parameters by which the people can approach me. And he said the same thing for us today. There is a parameter. God is holy. We are not. We will end up like the gods of Egypt in his presence, except for the one who is holy, Jesus, has made the way. Jesus offers a life exchange to each of us. He says, he lived the perfect life keeping all the moral law. His enemies even recognized that. Pilate recognized, I find no fault in this guy, right? He kept the law. And what Jesus offered on the cross in our place is a life exchange. His perfect life for our sinful life, lawbreakers are what we are. The Ten Commandments showed us that. Well, Jesus who will ultimately judge us according to his own perfect righteousness, good luck with that, says, wait, here's the solution. I will put my righteousness upon you. That's grace. You can't earn it. You have to do, all you have to do is wave the, the white flag. <laughs> Just surrender. That's faith. Jesus, you're offering me grace? You're offering... You're offering me forgiveness. You're offering me to be able to keep the whole law and live with God right now and forever and eternity? Man, I'm putting my faith in you, not faith in myself. That's the gospel, man. And the Ten Commandments should point us to the gospel. It's the path to life. I'm going to skip the last quote. Uh, Georgiana. Georgiana's a pro back there, by the way. Thank you, Georgiana. The gospel is the result of seeing the Ten Commandments for what they really are. They're the heart of God. They reflect His heart. And they show us we're sinners. And we run to the gospel. We run to Jesus. He's the only solution. He's the path to life. Um, I want us to, re to turn to a, a time of response. We've talked about the moral law today and our failure to meet the moral law. We're all, we're all swimming in the same sea. <laughs> we're rowing in the same boat together. The question is, what's your next step with Jesus? And what are the barriers that you have to taking that next step with Jesus? I don't, I don't know what your personal next step with Jesus is. Maybe it's like, man, I, I'm going to recognize that Jesus alone is righteous. I can't be righteous enough. Um, I need the Savior. Maybe, maybe that's your next step with Him, put, placing your faith in Him. Maybe your next step is, man, I have pl placed my faith in him, but I've never made it public. You know, I've never come down and been like dunked in the water representing my old life being going away. And I'm, I've been raised to walk in newness of life with Jesus. I've never done that publicly. Maybe that's your next step, publicly proclaiming your faith in Jesus that way. 
Maybe your next step with Jesus is recognizing his grace to you this week. Man, I've messed up a lot. Um, but when Jesus died for me, I had never done anything to perform for him or be good enough. He paid for my sins, past, present, and future. Maybe your next step with him is just spending some time thanking him for what he... He said when we, when we observe this Lord's Supper that we're going to do in just a minute, he said whenever we do it, do it in remembrance of him. And that's what he meant. Remembering that he paid the cost, man. God's a righteous judge. Payment has to be made and it has been made. The question is, will you trust it? Will you trust it?